Welcome to Ben Navarra's podcast with your host, Ben Navarra's. Hi, and good morning. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is, of course, Ben Navaris, your host, and today we have on Miss Lisa Skinner. Lisa is a specialist in the Alzheimer's world with books and hold all sorts of uh, conventions and things that we're going to go ahead and get into, and then also just some personal experience inside that world. Um, so Lisa, thank you for coming on and sharing some time with us today. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Lisa, tell me a little bit about like your background in the world of Alzheimer's. How'd you get started in studying this space? And then how, how why did it continue to, to grow? Well, I kind of followed the yellow brick road. And that road started for me close to 50 years ago. When uh, one day, I went to visit my grandmother, who lived just a few miles from us, and I had just gotten my driver's license, so I drove over to her house to visit, and she invited me in. We sat down in her living room, started to have what I thought was going to be just an ordinary, typical conversation, and then she started to tell me about these birds that were living in her mattress, and they came out at night and pecked at her face. I was dumbfounded. And then she, you know, insisted that the birds were there and I just had no idea what to say. This was completely foreign to me. I didn't know where this story was coming from. But then she continued to tell me about the rats that were invading her home and she pointed to her living room wall and told me that um, they constantly run back and forth. Can't I see them? And they're taking over. They're invading. And then the last story was about the men that were constantly trying to break into her home to harm her. And they were stealing her jewelry because she can't find any of her valuable jewelry. It's just gone. And so this was a total wake up call for me. I didn't know what to think of it. My mother had never said a thing about my grandmother kind of going off the rails. And so I even said to her, because you know, I had a lot of respect for my grandmother. We had a great relationship. She never lied to me. She was the sweetest little lady in the world. So I just kind of impulsively thought, okay, grandma, let's go in your bedroom and check these birds out. So I led her into the bedroom. I threw the covers off the bed, did not see any evidence of birds in or out her mattress. I pushed it up. I flipped it over. I was looking underneath and I said, okay, grandma, I want to believe um, that these birds are really there, but I'm not seeing anything. Could you maybe help me and tell me where specifically they are hiding and coming in and out of your mattress? And she looks at me straight in the face and she said, oh, Lisa, they're there. They're just very, very clever. And unbeknownst to me, 
she had been calling the po local police five, six, seven times a day, reporting these same stories to them. And I, I didn't have a clue. This is the first notion I had had. And so <clears throat> I left and I went home and I told my mom. And she said, yeah, grandma has senile dementia. I was like, well, why didn't you say something? And her reply to me was, we don't talk about those things. It's like, okay, thanks for the warning, mom. <laughs> Seriously. So things continued like that. And then one day we get a knock on the door and it's this chief of police. And he comes in our house. I'm standing right there. He sits my mom down and he says straight to her face, ma'am, you really need to do something about your mother. She is a total nutcase. And she calls the station five, six, seven times a day. And we just don't have the time or the resources to keep responding to these, you know, just unbelievable stories she's telling us. And he said, well, we did go out and check out her stories a couple times, found no evidence of anything, but it's just getting too much. She doesn't stop calling. And when he called my grandmother a nutcase, I was so offended. And so ups just uh, upset because this was the chief of police. Yeah, it was almost 50 years ago. Uh, things were a lot different then. But instead of showing some compassion and empathy that maybe something was wrong with my grandmother and we really needed to address that, he just rushed to the judgment that she was a nutcase. And that my mom needed to do something with her. So that was my very first impression and experience with what later on turned out to be Alzheimer's disease. They didn't call it then, but back then they, they called it senile dementia. Didn't know a whole lot about it. My mother did end up having my grandmother go into um, what they call even today, back then, a board and care home, usually about six residents in the home, and they specialized in memory impairment. And she just got worse from there. But she did live about 20 years with the disease, which is a very, very long, long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, continued to decline, continued to tell just whopping stories. So kind of fast forward and address your question. When it was time for me to go to college, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And I took a class in human behavior because I'd always been fascinated by what makes people tick. Why do they behave the way they do? And so I took the course. I absolutely loved it. I was obsessed. I decided right then and there, this was going to be my career path. Now, keep in mind, you know, I've got my grandma filed in my memory banks with that whole scenario. So I ended up getting my degree in human behavior, still did not know what I was going to do with it. And I just kind of accidentally stumbled into my first position that was called a community counselor. And it was at an assisted living facility in upstate New York with memory care. 
And my job was to assess people coming into the facility and decide whether or not they um, qualified, what type of care they need, you know, the care plan, all of that. And that really was my first introduction to working with um, the elderly and uh, especially people with Alzheimer's disease and dementia and memory impairment. And I ended up making a career out of it. So professionally, I've been doing this for 30 years. I have to date, in addition to my grandmother, I've had seven more family members uh, develop one of the brain diseases that cause dementia. And there are over 200. Alzheimer's is the, the most well-known of them. Um, Five of those total eight have been blood relatives. The other three were through marriage, so mother-in-law, brother-in-law, and uncle. And on top of that, I actually had a dog who developed doggy dementia. Yes, it's a real thing. <laughs> so I think this is my calling. I really, you know, I've, I've walked in these families' paths. I really haven't seen a whole lot change. Um, just even dating back to my grandmother, uh, as far as people understanding the illness. So I've written a couple books. Um, I speak all over about this tragic disease because I have found, and I still believe it a thousand percent, that the number one thing that's lacking in most people, whether you're a caregiver to somebody with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, or you have a loved one living with it, the number one thing, the key to having a high quality relationship with them is first to understand the disease and to expect stories like birds living in the mattress and coming out and pecking at your face and all the other bizarre unusual behaviors and symptoms that we see with this disease that come up completely unexpectedly on a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day basis. And so if you know um, that to recognize these symptoms, like the birds in the mattress story and the rats invading the house, because people who live with this disease do what we call hallucinate. They do have delusions. They um, have false beliefs. So if you know to expect these and then additionally know how to effectively respond to those false beliefs and all the behaviors that you see, this is the disease talking. This is the disease that you're seeing behave. It's not your loved one all of a sudden just went crazy. This is not a mental illness. This is a brain disease. And then um, know how to effectively respond. The whole entire journey, whether you're a caregiver or a loved one, will be so much less stressful. And you can really then focus on what really matters. And that's spending quality time with that person. So that's kind of the story that led up to why I do what I do and 
why I still want do what I do because I really have not seen that much change. Things are just now starting to kind of reach a turning point where it's being talked about a lot more. It's trending more regularly. Uh, a lot of uh, celebrities are now being um, uh, diagnosed with brain diseases and they're, they're talking about it. But this has just been since COVID. So it's been very, very recent. Yeah. So it, just, of- it, it feels like, it, I mean, it just, even if I did know what was going on with the disease, it, it seems almost impossible to not get fatigued. And understanding, yes, that these are definitely some 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 common symptoms, but how does you know like to do twenty years of that if I'm not whether even if I do know a little bit about the disease, I think any any human that's also having career and kids and family and starts to do Christmas and buy gifts, and then you also have your your you know your your mom or your grandma that's saying there's there's stuff underneath the bed or you're being invaded or there's aliens. I mean, I think the reality is that it's it's still fatiguing. It's I mean, there's no way it's not right. There is absolutely no question in my mind that anybody who cares for somebody, whether they're the primary caregiver or the family member who goes and visits their loved one in a memory care facility, and other people are taking care of them, it is the hardest job that anybody will ever take on in their life, harder than raising kids, anything, because we're dealing with people who, um, whose brains are damaged, their brains are changing. Um, it's a very long, drawn out process from A to Z. The average person lives with it from eight to 15 years. My grandmother happened to be a 20 year person, um, which is not, you know, that rare. And it is, like you said, Ben, it's such an exhausting dilemma to deal with because you just don't know what's coming at you next. You don't know if you're going to go visit your mom in the memory care and all of a sudden she's going to start screaming at you and cursing at you and calling you a different name because her short-term memory just short-circuited and she has no idea what your name is, but she knows that she knows you somehow. How do you react to that? So these are all the things that come up with this disease that I prepare people for and tell them how to respond to these occurrences that come up and they come up regularly and unexpectedly. This is the disease. So how does somebody respond? Well, And I've also led support groups for family members. And I have heard from thousands of family members over the 30 years that I've been doing this. That's probably one of the most hurtful things that they have had happen to them. They'll they'll go visit their parent and their parent starts calling them by a different name. And they, you know, clearly don't recognize them as being their daughter or their adult son. I explain to them why that happens. So that's the first place that I start, which I've come up with analogy to help people understand why that occurs. And then I teach them how to um, react to, to that situation, which is to go along with 
the false belief. So what are, what are those analogies? Okay, so the best thing I've been able to come up with in all these years is think of the short-term memory. So let me just back up for a second. The hallmark of Alzheimer's disease is doing damage to the short-term memory part of the brain. That's the very first thing it attacks. There are other hallmarks of some of the other brain diseases, but the most common brain disease that causes Alzheimer's is damaging the short-term memory. In the very first phase of the disease, the early stage, that short-term memory is pretty well-functioning and you don't really notice any significant changes in personality and behaviors. Most people are not even diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease until they're already well into the mid-stage of the disease because in the beginning, the signs and symptoms are so subtle that doctors really cannot differentiate between normal aging forgetfulness and something more serious developing like brain disease, Alzheimer's. When it really becomes blatantly obvious is the mid-stage of the disease. And that's typically when the family makes an appointment for an evaluation. There is no definitive way today to um, officially diagnose Alzheimer's disease. It's more of a process of elimination. What, it, what is this not versus what is it? And after they've eliminated every other possibility, then they'll usually say, well, I think she has Alzheimer's disease. The only way we know right now to definitively diagnose Alzheimer's disease is after death upon um, an autopsy by slicing the brain and seeing plaques and tangles in the brain. So, and to give you an example, I don't know if you remember a very famous actor and musician called uh, by the name of Chris Christopherson. A very, very famous gentleman. Um, I know I'm dating myself. If you're, you know, baby boomer, you'll know the name. But just case in point and to use him as an example, he was showing all of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. His doctors gave him a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. He was treated for Alzheimer's disease for three years. And then another doctor suggested testing him for Lyme disease. And it turns out he was positive for Lyme disease. So in his case, he was completely misdiagnosed, been treated for Alzheimer's for three years. And it turns out he had Lyme disease. So my point here is there's no tools or tests available right now to definitively say, yes, this person has Alzheimer's disease. We think this person has Alzheimer's disease because we haven't come up with anything else and all the signs and the symptoms are there. But that's kind of the way things stand now. So the analogy is think of the short-term memory as being hooked up to a switch, an on-off switch, like you turn a light on and off. Um, and by the mid-stage of the disease, 
that switch is flipping on and flipping off constantly with no warning, no signs. By the end of the disease, the switch is either mostly off and the person really does not have a, much of their short-term memory left over, or it's off completely and they have no short-term memory. So when that happens, that person is pull, brain is pulling from their long-term memory banks because the long-term memory stays intact for the entire disease. So this is why in the mid-stage of the disease, when that switch is flipping on and off, on and off, on and off, like a light switch, just randomly with no warning and out of the blue, when it's off, they're pulling from their long-term memory. When it's on, the short-term memory is functioning and they're thinking clearly and they're in the same reality that we are in. So what happens, the reason why it might happen that you go visit your mom in the memory care and all of a sudden she starts calling you by a different name. Well, guess what just happened? Her short-term memory switch just flipped off. She's pulling from her long-term memories and she's now gone back into a different time period of her life. And I'll give, I'll use my mother-in-law as an example because this happened to her regularly. So my husband is of course, you know, a grown adult man. And sometimes when we visited her with her Alzheimer's disease, she would call him by his name, which is Roy. Knew exactly who he was. You're my adult son. Other times we would go visit. That short-term memory switch was off. When hers went off, she believed she was about 14 or 15 years old, living in through her adolescent phase of life. She had not even met her future husband yet, let alone had five kids and, you know, grown children. In her mind, she knew he was connected to her in some way. But because in her mind, in her reality, she was only 14 or 15 years old, this man standing in front of her couldn't possibly be her grown son because in her mind, he didn't exist yet. So the thing that made sense to her was, this is not Roy, my adult son. This is Otto, my brother, because Otto, her brother, fit into that time frame of her life. Is this making sense? Yeah, I think, I think we get the analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And this is what happens. So what we teach people and this has been through evidence-based studies um for years and years and years and you know they've tried every approach they can think of but the most effective approach is to do what we call join their reality until that switch flips back on and now they have their short-term memory back because nothing anybody can do or say to somebody whose switch is off can convince them that that is your adult son, not your brother. So instead of arguing with them and trying to, yeah. to bring them back into your reality, 
just go along with it yeah. until the switch goes back on and they are back in the same reality that you are. Yeah. So you said there's 200 different diseases that ultimately cause the, the big disease that we know as, as Alzheimer's. What do you, what do you mean by that? I, I don't know that I follow that. that okay. That. Okay. I get that question a lot and it's a really an easily explanation. This is the difference between brain diseases and, and dementia. So there are over 200 brain diseases. Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease. Parkinson's disease is a brain disease. Huntington's disease is a Okay. Dementia is not a brain disease at all. As a matter of fact, it's not a disease, period. It is an umbrella term that's used to basically refer to the symptoms that these brain diseases cause. And even though they vary a little bit between the different diseases, like I said, the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease is short-term memory damage. The hallmark of frontotemporal lobe brain disease is personality changes because it's attacking a different part of the brain, even though they do, they do suffer from short-term memory loss too, but not as severely as people with Alzheimer's disease. So dementia really is referring to the symptoms, like when you are coming down with the flu or a cold and you have a headache and you have a fever and you have, you know, body aches. Those are symptoms you're experiencing. And you hope that when you go to your doctor and explain what your symptoms are, he can hopefully narrow it down and say you have a cold, you have the flu, you have whatever. So when you're referring to dementia, you're really referring to the symptoms, like the hallucinations, the false beliefs. So dementia is not an actual illness. It re really is the bucket of signs, symptoms, and behaviors that are caused by whatever brain disease the person has. And then to throw another wrench into the whole equation, people commonly suffer from more than one brain disease at the same time call it mixed dementia. So you can have Alzheimer's disease, which is attacking first your short-term memory, and then it's moving on to other parts of your brain. And you can have frontotemporal lobe dementia at the same time, and that's attacking a completely different part of your brain. So that just makes the whole situation even more difficult. But it's not that uncommon for people to have more than one type of brain disease at the same time. What what can people do to to prevent the likelihood? I mean, obviously, if it runs in the family, kind of, you know, you you have some sort of genetic predisposition to to having it. What are some things that people can do that maybe will um, delay the effect if they if they did have gen, uh, a genetic predisposition, or maybe get rid of the the, the chances of having it entirely? And that is a really um, important question that I think people should really pay more attention to and be aware of. There are a lot of different risk factors that go into the equation of increasing an individual's risk of developing brain disease later on in life. These brain diseases typically show up starting at around the age of 65, with the exception of what's called 
early onset Alzheimer's disease. It is a genetic form of Alzheimer's disease, and it typically, uh, the symptoms show up much earlier in a person's life than age 65 and older. It is a rarer form of Alzheimer's disease. So we have this huge list of risk factors. Some of them are what we call modifiable. In other words, if that risk factor pertains to you as an individual person and you have a modifiable risk factor, there are things you can do to change it from being a risk factor and not adding to the pile of risk factors that apply to you and continue to increase your risk of developing it. Then we have a list of non-modifiable risk factors. And what we mean by non-modifiable, if, and I'll, I'll explain um, a little bit more about that. If you have any of the non-modifiable risk factors, you can't do a thing about them. You're stuck with those risk factors. So the number one non-modifiable risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease is a person's age. So it usually, as I said, starts to show up at age 65 or older. And every five years, the your chances of developing Alzheimer's disease increases exponentially. So at 65, you're at a certain percentage risk. Then at 70, you're in yada, yada, yada. By the time you're 80 years old today, one in three people have it. So we can't change our age. We can't change our gender. Um, more women develop Alzheimer's disease than men. You can't change your ethnicity. Uh, Latinos are known to be about 50% more um, at risk to develop Alzheimer's disease than Caucasians and also African-Americans. Can't change that. And there are the genetic factors. If you um, carry a gene called the APOE4 gene, which is the genetic gene that can um, increase your chance of developing Alzheimer's disease, we can't change that. So you got all of those going against you just out of the gate. Then you have your entire list of modifiable. The number one modifiable risk factor is cardiovascular disease. If you have any heart condition or any heart disease, you are now at a very high risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. If you have diabetes, if you have sleep apnea, if you eat a very poor diet, and I can elaborate on that a little bit more if you'd like me to, if you don't get regular exercise, if you don't actively um, exercise your brain, these are all risk factors that are now being put in your bucket. And the more that apply to you, the higher your risk is going to be of developing Alzheimer's disease. Now, these are put on top of the ones that you can't change, your age, your gender, your ethnicity. So the good news is, if you have any of the modifiable risk factors, like cardiovascular disease, if you're being treated for it, then you can negate that from piling on to your risk factor.
but it has to be being it has to be being managed if you're not being treated for cardiovascular disease and it's not being managed then guess what that's piled on your risk of developing now one of the things that people i don't think are that aware of but i'm going to tell you that this is based on on proof on scientific evidence on evidence-based information on decades of studies that what we eat does increase or what you don't eat what you do i'll say what you do eat increases your risk of developing alzheimer's disease we know that for a fact we know if you don't exercise regularly that increases your risk of if you have a hearing impairment now you're at higher risk of develop. There are so many of them. It's like, what doesn't increase your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease? But the reason, Ben, why this is so important, and it doesn't matter what age you are right now. I know you have a lot of um, younger listeners. Um, if those people today paid a little bit more attention to what they were putting in their mouth. And there is definitely truth to you are what you eat. You can make lifestyle choices starting today that will actually decrease your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease when you are 65 or older. Um, Probably one of the very worst things that we can eat are what we call ultra processed foods and processed foods. What's the difference between an ultra processed food versus a processed food? Processed foods don't have quite as much junk in them as ultra processed foods. I mean, they basically strip every nutrient out of the food and replace it with sugar and starches and um, simple carbohydrates and processed meats and nitrites and nitrates. So these are all like hot dogs or ultra processed foods. Um, so the recommended diet. Wait, did you say hot hot dogs are ultra processed or processed? They're ultra processed. They're one of the meat. Okay. Fast foods are processed and ultra processed. Um, like those American cheese slices that come in the slices. That's, you can probably consider those ultra processed versus the ones that aren't wrapped in the wrappers, which are still processed, but not as processed as the other form that just don't I'm going to look this phrase just so we make sure. Ultra processed foods. Ice cream, ham, sausages, crisps, mass produced bread, breakfast cereals. Biscuits, carbonated drinks, fruit-flavored yogurts, instant soups, and some alcoholic drinks, including whiskey, gin, and rum, are considered ultra-processed foods versus some processed foods would be um, any foods that have been altered in some sort of way during preparation. Food processing can be as basic as freezing, canning, and cooking. So I think the ultra-processed foods are the things that we, we really consider the, the unhealthy things versus, I mean, if I have, you know, um, frozen vegetables, they're better than, they're traditionally healthier than my 
my unfrozen vegetables that I'm getting from the, you know, the outside of the aisle that everybody always recommends. And so I think that just making that, I want to make sure that we make that delineation that, you know, ultra processed foods, the ones that we consider, I think generally as um, processed foods or things in bags that are much less healthy for us. Um, the things in the middle of the aisle usually uh, versus a, a processed food in general is a food that has gone through a process. So I, it sounds like I could even have my meats. I mean, everything I guess is technically processed in some sort of way, right? Like my my fruits, my veggies, we're all in a process of picking, shipping, and cooling, and then finally arriving. Those are a natural process. Anything that you take out of the ground is not been additionally processed. It just says um, food processing can be as basic as freezing, canning, or even cooking is the definition. So if you eat um, fresh peas versus frozen peas, then it's not necessarily that the frozen peas are that bad for you, but the fresh peas are better for you. That's kind Tradi- of a- Traditionally, the frozen peas are, are better uh, because they lose less nutrients on their shipping, right? Because heat degradates any nutrients. And so if, if you know, it's just the same, same thing as cooking. If I cook my food, it's going to be usually some some items, like some proteins will then unfold. And so then I can consume them. My body can, can assimilate them a little bit better. Uh, but Generally, when when I was going through my food science courses at A and M or at, at during my university time, uh, we want to recommend more people to have those frozen veggies because they have been flash frozen, and so then therefore they can keep they keep more of their nutrients during that process. They, they don't degradate or they they slow down the aging process of the actual the the, the tissue or the the item. So I think that just making sure we want we. Those items that are on your that are unfrozen that you can get that are like maybe your unfrozen peas um, could they be healthy if they are a local item? Yes, uh, but if they came from New York and I live in Las Vegas and they shipped over here and they spent all that time in a truck and they got washed and food and hands, probably not nearly as healthy as something or as nutritious that nutrient dense as something that was same thing maybe also picked in in lot in new york frozen and then now ha- has less time to, to and, and in bags less hands touch it less chemicals are coming at it from the outside and then it ships to me it preserves a little bit better well sounds like that's um, more along the lines of your expertise than mine i didn't realize that you had a food science background but yeah everything you say makes total sense to me and um the, the i think the the main point here for your audience is to kind of simplify things. Anything you eat that is a simple carbohydrate, the white stuff, the sugars, the flours, um, processed foods are really what is going to put you at a higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease than Sticking with the complex carbohydrates, so the whole grains and what they call more of a Mediterranean-style diet, so lots of uh, leafy vegetables and broccoli and less red meat. They're not saying don't ever eat red meat, but eat more fish and poultry. And so that's the recommended 
lifestyle choice to now reverse that risk factor from your life. And then in addition to that, getting regular exercise. And that doesn't have to be no pain, no gain mentality like they used to tell us. It can be walking 20 minutes a day will be, you know, will be so advantageous to any of us, no matter what age we are. So, uh, yeah, everything you're saying just really rings true. And those are lifestyle choices that anybody can make at any phase of their life that may reduce their risk of developing Alzheimer's disease 30 years from now. It's like, well, why am I worried about something 30 years from now? Because the choices you make today could mean the difference between not recognizing your adult son and recognizing your adult son when he comes to visit you. So, um, and then there's that APOE4 gene factor too. If you carry it, does that mean you're definitely going to get Alzheimer's disease? No, it does not. But it certainly does increase your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease runs in families. I have five blood relatives who have succumbed to Alzheimer's disease. I don't know if I carry the gene because I've never been tested for it, but I know I'm high risk. I live with that every day. I make healthy lifestyle choices to reduce that risk, but it's a disease that does not discriminate. I might be lucky and it might skip over me or it might not. But I, I will not know that probably for years to come. But I do know that if I make certain choices today, I'm lowering my risk. So that's basically the choices that we make is, do you want to take that extra risk or do you want to do things today, starting today, or even if you're 75 today, that might help you avoid getting this tragic, tragic disease. I think those, I think those little things like taking a walk outside for 20, 30 minutes or walking with the dog, I think they're, they're simple items that we can take that we can do that ultimately will help just overall keep a healthier human being. Right. And, and, and then a healthier brain later on. And it's just understanding that I think the immediate gratification of maybe having a bag of chips or the immediate gratification of having three, four five cocktails a day. Um, just realize that what we're doing to our bodies later in the future, when we are 75, 80 years old, that we are or 65, I guess, when it starts to present, um, that we're creating a lot of damage inside the brain and, and no, and knowingly, like, I, I think I'm, I'm big on, understanding that the, like this is the data this is the information now if you're okay with living the rest of your life knowing this information and then still making the decision to say eh i'm going to i'm still going to drink i'm still going to not work out i'm still going to it's like okay well i i'm it's not, it's not like i can force you at the end of the day i mean you are your own human um but i know that i don't want to be 70 80 years old and having that time a little bit selfishly but also a little bit because i don't want the other individual to have to to 
to so Corner, I'm gonna say like deal with me in those moments. Like that's it's stressful. I mean, I can't I can't imagine seeing a loved one just dim- diminish slowly, but not really know that they are, and like how confusing it must be. I was in, uh, I, I was in Columbia, uh, British Columbia, just a short time ago, and we were walking down the road, and there is a, two two ladies together, and I look like mom and and daughter, and the mom looked at me like she was so scared, lost, confused, and I was like, I. I mean, I can kind of like pick up on these kind of like these immediate cues, usually the because I do work in this space of exercise physiology. Uh, and I was like, I, I think that she might have some sort of, she might be having this, the symptoms of dementia in this current moment. Um, maybe has some Alzheimer's and she's, she's, she's scared. And the daughter is walking her to try to give her, you know, some exercise and maybe keep that brain still living and feeling good. And it just, it seems like a very sad existence for like myself in that moment, but a hard time for the other individuals. You know, it's, it's a very, very tragic and devastating disease, but I do want to say, because I don't want it to sound like all doom and gloom. And then if you do have a, diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or one of the other brain diseases, your life is over. People live very meaningful, purposeful, um, high quality lives. But again, you need to know the right environment to provide them with to maximize that for as long as you can. And um, just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, I want to add one thing. The reason why these foods have been proven to ha- to uh, considerably raise somebody's risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. It's because all those foods that, that Ben and I have been talking about, they cause in our bodies, and I know you know this term, inflammation. Inflammation in your body, inflammation in your brain. And that's where it starts. And then that inflammation will just continue to increase to where, you know, the the tau proteins start to form and uh, you get plaques and tangles in your brain. And that's the definition or the explanation for Alzheimer's disease. But it starts with inflammation. We know this. This is not conjecture at all. This is factual. And inflammation is commonly comes from the foods we put in our mouth, right, Ben? I mean, sounds like something that you would definitely be aware of. How do you reduce inflammation in your body? How do I what? How does a person reduce the occurrence of inflammation in their bodies? I think inflammation. I think is a is a big is a, a a big phrase or a big conversation that's happening right now. And I think that there is both good and bad inflammation. Right, um, my body can be become inflamed around an injury. So if I if I hurt my arm. Um, I'm going to have some inflammation around that area to reduce its mobility so that I don't use it. And then people take NSAIDs or some Advil or whatever to decrease that range or to decrease the discomfort associated with um, 
that that injury and then therefore decrease the inflammation, right? Uh, which oh, oh, can can increase the risk of injury over the long term. So it's it's perceived as bad all the time and i think that it's not always bad it's just where where it becomes maybe more harmful is where i have swelling of the brain i think is is a good one or like and people perceive swelling of the brain it's the same thing as in, inflammation around the area um or of my gut um it creates an unhealthy environment for the bacteria around my gut um and so if if my gut and my brain are going to be as linked as they are then I'm not setting myself up for the best possible um, interactions of all these different hormones that act on my brain. And I agree with you about what you said about there's good inflammation and bad inflammation because good inflammation really is our body's natural response for protecting an injury in that sense, but it's temporary. But the foods we eat, can cause long-term ongoing permanent inflammation and the longer you have it the more damage it's doing right so the longer the short of that is the better the food choices you make the less inflammation you're going to be creating in your body and your brain and therefore lowering your risk of developing alzheimer's disease later on versus the inflammation that occurs when you do have an injury, which is our body's natural healing process. It's temporary. It protects that area and then it subsides. That doesn't happen um, when it's based on the foods you put in your body and your lack of exercise and, and things like that. So yeah, that's, that's the huge difference. Yeah. I think, I think, um, being in the sauna, I know it one reduces inflammation quite a bit around joints, um, makes your hair, skin, and nails nice and healthy for those that that want that uh, benefit. Uh, but also, I don't. I, I'm currently reading a book, and I'm very very short into it. But it talks about heat shock proteins and how they influence the brain. And so far, what I've what I've read and what I've listened to is being in the sauna for 15 to 20 minutes a day for four days a week can significantly decrease your risk of Alzheimer's as well. And part of that is, I think is also is decreasing my, my risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, and so like you, you said earlier, the, there's a link between those two. So I think that the rate is like something like 56%, um, per, um, 56% overall of decreased cardiovascular disease, given that protocol of 15 to 20 minutes, four times a week. So, I think that, you know, little things that we can, like, we can decide to do that can make a big difference long term that, again, we, we might be not, it's not always the most fun to sit in the sauna and sweat and not feel super comfortable. But if it's going to benefit me for the long term and make sure my brain is sharp, especially for people who are going to be either having conversations, people who are in business, um, people who are trying to, to do things or just exist and trying to just be with their family. I mean, you know, trying to make sure that we take care of our bodies in any sort of way is, is, is good for the long term. And that's funny that you um, did bring up the sauna because that's one of the things that we recommend for people to do to lower their risk is to spend regular time in an infrared sauna because the infrared does is known to reduce inflammation and you're sweating out those toxins. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's a great recommendation. And it's one that we actually have on our list of things that people 
um, can do to lower that risk. I love it. Well, Lisa, where can people find you? What are some, some good um, things? I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to speak on that we didn't get to? Um, boy, we covered a lot today. I hope this has been really um, eye-opening for a lot of people, and um, they do take these things seriously. Uh, I'm just going to emphasize one more time, uh, especially if you have this going on in your family, no matter what age you are, it could be a parent, it could be a grandparent, it could be somebody that you know. But if you are kind of in the throes of uh, this situation with a, a family member, learn as much as you can about it. One of the biggest reasons why we don't go visit our relatives who suffer from Alzheimer's disease is because it's uncomfortable. You never know what's going to come out of their mouth. You don't know if they're going to start swearing at you. But if you know that these things do happen, you can expect them and be prepared for them. And then not just recognize that this is the disease behaving, but know that um, the way you react to these things that do come up unexpectedly um, can make a huge difference to your relationship with them um, at that time. Remove stress or add stress. So that is pretty much the, probably the most important thing I've discovered, the key in the 50 years since my first experience, in the 30 years that I've been doing this professionally, is know be prepared and know what to look for, know what to expect, and then the best practices for responding to, um, because there's no getting around these behaviors that we see, these symptoms. They're part of the disease, and they um, they happen regularly. So hopefully this has all been really um, helpful information. I've had people actually tell me, clients, that when they were kind of my age, like a teenager or even younger, and they had a grandparent who suffered from Alzheimer's disease, and they'd go and visit them. They were so freaked out by what they saw this disease does to their loved one that even as older adults, they never really, you know, came to terms with it. And the projections based on the baby boomer generation um, a lot of the older baby boomers are now turning 80, and this is the largest generation in the history of mankind that is will be developing Alzheimer's disease because we're all living so much longer. By the year 2025, the number of people worldwide living with Alzheimer's disease will triple. If we don't find a cure or a treatment for it, and I'm going to tell you, as honestly as I possibly can. As a society, we are not prepared for the amount of people that are projected to develop this deep disease. So at some point, it's probably going to impact your life too. I have parents. I have grandparents, I'm sure. You know, you never know. No. Well, thank you again. And where can people find you? Uh, do you do coaching? Do you like what? Um, how? Yeah, where can people find you? Do you have a website? Do you have any events going on? 
I actually am going to be hosting what's called a summit on January 23rd of 2024. I'm assembling um, speakers uh, who are experts in some area that's related to living with Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. So uh, maybe we'll have an elder care attorney discussing what documents are important or about elder abuse and music therapy. We're going to have just a, a variety of experts talking about things related to living with Alzheimer's disease. Um, I do have a website. It's called www.truthlies.com andalzheimers.com. I'm also on Facebook under um, Lisa Skinner Author. And you can find my books on amazon.com. So if you um, go to some of these platforms, just keep your eyes open for more details and more information. The event is free. It's a free event. So if any of this information that we've talked about today even slightly resonates with you and you're more curious, want more information, please come to the summit. We're going to, it's just going to be, you know, filled with valuable information like this from, you know, a, a variety of different experts and it's free. There's no cost to it. So we'd love to have you come. Beautiful. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Lisa, again for the time. Cheers. Y'all have a good rest of the day. Make sure you guys go to the summit, learn some stuff, um, and then follow, like, subscribe, do all the good things, share with your family, friends, um, help them get educated as well on this disease. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ben Navarro's podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. 